Unless your device is electronic, then don't stink your fingers in it. It's not a good idea. <laughs> so we're reading from Exodus 19. Words are across here to the right. So if you're opening a Bible for the first time, we're in the second book of the Old Testament. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be here for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people who hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself have warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, 
Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Continuing on in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor your foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his, male, uh, or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance, while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So we're going to skip over to the New Testament now, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It's doing a good job. It's doing a better job than I am. It's always when you're under pressure, isn't it? <laughs> so let's read together Hebrews chapter 12, shall we? You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to, to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you 
have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they, did, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, let's, let's pray. Our, our gracious Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to gather as your redeemed people, redeemed through Christ's blood. Uh, we thank you for the youth uh, who are gathering at Woodhouse, and we pray for them. Give them attention this morning and uh, be with all leaders and campers as, as they uh, think about what it means to worship you and to know you, to live in relationship with you. And please be with us. Help me to only say that which is true. Help me not to say anything that is untrue or unhelpful. And we pray that we would love you by focusing our minds to listen. And may you speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Some moments in the Bible are big. Some moments are very big. Here is one of the biggest. This is the only time in the whole of the Bible when the people of God gather together and collectively hear the audible spoken voice of Yahweh. And they tremble it. They tremble with fear for dying. My guess is that uh, very rarely has anyone ha today had a Mount Sinai type experience of God. What does it mean to have a relationship with the living God? Christians talk about having a relationship with God, but for most of us, it's much more ordinary. And it's so easy to misunderstand what a relationship with God looks like. For example, many people um, think that a relationship with God is all about rule keeping. You know, a Christian is someone who obeys the Ten Commandments. It's very impersonal. It's hardly a relationship at all. Others look at these chapters, the commandments, they think that God is a cosmic killjoy, a God who always says, thou shalt not, always negative. Some take an opposite positive view and see these chapters as a means for climbing the stairway to heaven. I've, I've had lots of conversations with people who would say them that they're moral and say, God should accept me because I obey the Ten Commandments. And I say, can you tell me the first one? And they, then they're stumped. Um, and there are plenty of people who think, I don't steal, but I may fudge the timesheet. I may not put it in everything on my tax return I should, but I, I don't steal. And I've never murdered, though there are lots of people I would like to see come to harm. And 
I make sure I take a Sabbath, though I won't go to church because Sundays are sacred. And they think that because they're moral, they have a relationship with God. This is a distortion. Last of all, this is closer to home. I think many Christians consider that because God is into grace, not law, because these commandments were given to Israelites, not Gentiles, that therefore they are entirely irrelevant for Gentile believers today. That, uh, that it's right to be much more casual in our relationship with God. So again, we come to the question, what does it mean to have a relationship with the living God? And what does it mean to be a people in relationship with the living God? So today we come to this high point in the Bible where God finally gathers his people together and meets with them and speaks to them and he sets out the framework for his relationship with his people by giving them his covenant. These chapters tell us what a relationship with the living God will look like. And we're beginning in chapter 19, which is the context for chapter 20. And what we see in chapter 19 are the privileges and the demands of grace. And both have to be understood. You miss one, you'll misunderstand what a relationship with God is. First of all, there's the privileges of grace. And they're set out in chapter 19, verses four and five. Have a look. In verse four, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And we recall now the plagues that God brought against Egypt and her gods and how he personally stepped in to fight for Israel and annihilated Pharaoh's army. This is what God has done for his people. And he says, and you know how I carried you on eagles' wings, and that's their journey through the desert, and, and I brought you here to myself, because that had always been the goal, that they would come to the mountain where God first revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and they would come as the whole people of God and worship and he says, and you yourselves know that of all the nations, you would be my treasured possessions. And that although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the Lord is saying, this is what I've done. So that anything that he says from this point on is predicated, first of all, on God's salvation of them because they are recipients of his grace. Anything he says about what they must do is not what they need to do to be saved, but what they are to do because they are already saved. Our relationship with God is never about what we have done to earn it, but all about what God has done for us on our behalf, all about what God has saved us from and what he's now saving us into. Now at this point, many of us um, would, who get it would like to, like to stop. We say, yes, I'm saved by grace, thank you very much, now let me get on with my life. But that is to misunderstand grace completely. You know, we can think grace being grace, there can be no demands. Not so. With the outpouring of grace comes essential obligations. Um, married couples get this, you, you know, you go out, the proposal happens, you think I am grace upon grace that I could be married to her or grace upon grace that I could be married to him. Isn't this such a wonderful thing? Out of all the people that could be chosen, I'm the one, I'm the one chosen. And then you enter into a covenant and you declare the terms of how you are to relate to one another and to other people. And this will define your relationship from now on. Well, same here, God has saved them out of all the nations and he has brought Israel as his treasured possession to himself and 
He is gathering them together and, and formalizing it and, and entering into relationship with them. And they have been shown extraordinary grace. Verse four, of all the peoples of the earth I could have chosen, I've chosen you. I've borne you on eagles' wings. I've brought you to myself. He showed astounding grace to them. And then it's in that context of grace that he makes his demands very clear. Verse five, if you will fully obey me, he demands nothing less than full obedience and complete covenant loyalty. The Lord wants the whole of them. He wants every part of our lives. At this point, no details are given, no specifics spelled out. All he asks for is everything. And in verse eight, the people respond, we will do everything that you say. Now, if we might think this is unreasonable for God to demand, we have to remember who the Lord is. The covenant is not something that he negotiates with Israel as if he were relating to an equal partner. God defines the terms. In this covenant, he defines the terms, not us. Because the Lord isn't our equal. If he was, then he would stand in the presence of Israel or us and happily negotiate. But when the Israelites stand in the presence of the living God, they fear for their very lives. The Israelites have three days to prepare before the Lord comes to meet with them. And so they get ready. Moses puts limits around the mountain so that no one will die from going too close to God. It's as if God is putting up a danger, 40,000 volts sign there. You just can't go near to him and expect to be able to live. And the people had to wash all their clothes personally. They had to get ready. They had to refrain from their usual sexual activity with their spouses, not because that's dirty or unclean or naughty, but because meeting with the living God is not a normal thing. It calls for a disruption of our normal life so that we can wholly focus upon God. And then in verse 16, here's the moment. On the third day, the Israelites go with Moses and they stand at a distance to meet the Lord and the Lord comes down upon the mountain. And when the people saw the thunder and the lightning, and heard, the, heard the light, the thunder, saw the lightning, they see the fire on the mountain and the thick dark cloud, every one of them trembles. In fact, it wasn't just the people who tremble. When the Lord himself descends upon the mountain, the mountain itself trembles violently, verse 18, as if creation also was overcome at the coming of the Lord. And then they hear the sound of a trumpet and it is no human trumpet being sounded, it is a heavenly trumpet and the sound gets louder and louder and louder, can you imagine? And then in the presence of all of God's people, the Lord audibly speaks his 10 words or his 10 commandments to them. Wouldn't you love to hear God's voice? I wonder, because in chapter 20, verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and, when the, and saw the mountain in smoke, again, they trembled in fear. They stayed at a distance. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Friends, we can talk glibly about coming into the presence of God, can't we? There is nothing casual about being in the presence of the living God. There's nothing unhealthy about trembling when you stand in the presence of Yahweh. And we might say, well, we're under a new covenant with Jesus. God is more tame. 
The New Testament never says that God is tame. If anything, we should tremble even more because in Hebrews 12 we heard, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet um, or to such a voice speaking that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying, Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And then it warns us, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If the Israelites didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? And therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe because our God is a consuming fire. It is this God who calls us into a relationship with himself. He is not our equal. He is not tame. He is not a genie in a bottle. He is the awesome, fearsome, holy, living God who speaks to his people. And in these 10 words, he speaks to his people. God outlines what his relationship with his people is to look like. And now with this context to the, without this context to the 10 commandments, we will distort them. Um, The 10 words are not impersonal laws. They're intensely relational. They cannot be understood apart from God. And neither can they be understood apart from the world. Israel, chapter 19, verse five and six, was to have a priestly role to the nations of the world, defined firstly by living distinctive lives which reflect God's character. And it's through seeing this witness that the nations were to be attracted to God and come to know God. And this is exactly the logic of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks there of our priestly role to the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You have a a role in relation to the earth. You have a role in relation to the world. As salt, you preserve the world from rotting. As a light, you point people to God. And the first way we are to do it is by living distinctive lives which reflect God's character. It's interesting when Jesus gives his discipleship training to his disciples, before he tells them what to say, he tells them how they must live. It's the same here. God says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests to the world and here's how you're to live distinctively. And so the commandments cannot be understood without reference to God, and they can't be understood without reference to the wider world who's watching. And rather than go through them one by one, what I want to do is to set out three ways to understand them, three ideas for thinking about them. The first is that these commandments outline covenant freedom. In chapter 20, verse two, God introduces his commands by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So twice in that verse, God reminds them that he has acted to set them free because that's what God does for people. He intervenes in all their lives to set them free. But freedom can be misunderstood because just freeing them from slavery to the Egyptians is not giving them freedom because true freedom is not simply a matter of not having any oppressors anymore. True freedom is a matter of the heart. True freedom is a matter of who or what we worship. 
You know, if God had just uh, set the Israelites up in the desert in an oasis and sort of provided everything for them to live, they would not have been free. And that's the opposite to how we think. We, we think freedom is being free to be ourselves, free to express ourselves, free to do what we want. But we know where this leads, right? It leads to people who can't think beyond themselves, who serve only themselves, and who become insufferable in their selfishness. Friends, that is not freedom. Why? Because people are made in the image of God and serving ourselves is a distortion of that image. But because we are made in the image of God, true freedom comes by entering into a covenant relationship with God because only through knowing God can we be free to become the people we were made to be. And that's why God gives his people these 10 words. True freedom means to have no other gods but God. True freedom means to honor your father and mother. Freedom means to take a Sabbath. Freedom means being free from telling lives, free from being enslaved to our own desires, not coveting. To keep the commands is to live freely as someone made in the image of God. Take the Sabbath. Look at verse 11, Exodus 20. What's the reason why the seventh day is to be regarded as holy? It's because God took a day off. <laughs> and God, in his mercy, he gives us this command because he knows how easy it is for us to get in an endless treadmill of worshipping our own performance. And you know the mantras we keep replaying in our heads. I just got to try harder. I need to get fitter. I need to earn more. I need to achieve more in my life. God knows the only way that we're going to be free from this cycle of workaholism and free from this sort of lie of saying our value depends on our output is if we stop working and we focus on him. Because when we stop working, when we focus upon God, then we discover that who we are is not defined by what we do. Who we are is defined by the one in whom we are, have relationship, our, our creator, our savior. Our value comes not from what we do, how productive we are, how fit or rich we may or may not be, but upon the love that God has for us. Every single commandment tells us what it means to be made in the image of God. Take the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. The word for kill means to take an innocent life. Why shouldn't we take an innocent life? Because the innocent, the innocent life that we might take, they're made in the image of God as well. And that's where their value comes. That has huge ramifications for abortion, human embryo, embryo harvesting, euthanasia. Right? The command tells us it is God who gives life it is God who takes away life. We are not to do that because there's something inherently good and precious about human life because we are made in God's image. This commandment frees us to think this. And this is what the covenant is about. Through his commands, God is bringing us to freedom. It's like God has succeeded in bringing them out of Egypt. Now he has to bring Egypt out of them. I've rescued you from the Egyptians, now I'm rescuing you from your brokenness. That's what freedom is, it's to learn the shape of loving God and loving one another. So, and loving God and loving one another, that's the commandments, isn't it? First four, loving God. The six remaining ones, loving each other. 
So the first way to think about the commandments is in terms of covenant freedom. The second is to understand that these laws have to do with covenant community. Covenant freedom, covenant community. You can't miss it. God rescues his people, he gathers them to himself and now they meet with him for the first time as a congregation. This is the first time the word church actually appears in the Bible, the the gathering of God's people around his word. And he tells them there that they are to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, an alternate society which will bring blessing to the world. So that the blessing which was lost in Eden, it's now going to come back to the nations of the world through the people of God. This is a corporate, a communal picture. And just as God is different, so we, his people, are to be different in our corporate lives, our family lives, our communal lives, in the way we handle our children and parents, in the way we deal with money and sexuality. We are to be different as God is different. And that is the way God works. You know, all over the world, God is creating alternate societies of his people who think and love and relate differently to the world around them. Our attitude to money and sex and power, it will not come from the culture. God gives us these 10 words to show us how radically different we are to be. Look at the fifth commandment in verse 12. Uh, This is lovely. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is great. Here are the people God has rescued, and now he's getting into the kind of interpersonal commands, the the last six ones. This is the very first. And God speaks straight past the parents, and he speaks to the children, and he commands the children to have a particular attitude, because ever since Abraham, children have been just as much a part of the people of God as have the parents. This is a communal reality, isn't it? And the key attitude the children are to have is to honor their parents, both father and mother. And the word honor means to regard their opinion as heavy and weighty, not something easily discarded. It's an attitude of the heart, primarily. God doesn't spell out the thousand ways of doing this. And we know, of course, the parent-child relationship goes through different stages. Some of us here still live with our parents. Some of us have aging parents. And to treat them with honor and dignity is a Christian responsibility. And if parents make ungodly decisions, then of course you have to work out how to hold the first commandment in tension with the fifth. But the point is, in the covenant community, parents are to be honored because God delegates to parents the authority for raising God's children in his image and parents must instruct their children in the ways of the Lord because for a while, parents are responsible for the spiritual life of their children. And you can't miss it, every part of these covenant commands of God are communal. That's why it's impossible to obey the 10 commandments if all your Christian experience is to just come to church and duck off quickly with only one or two Christian friends in your life. If that's the sum total of your Christian experience, we can't have a covenant community because being a kingdom of priests means being in relationship with one another, being accountable to one another, helping each other see how we can love God and love one another and be a light to the world. You know, yesterday it was such a privilege to go down and watch um, the community in action down at uh, Woodhouse with the Impact Camp. And, you know, people here were involved in cooking and then the youth leaders are there. They're giving up their whole long weekend just to model Christian life and to encourage 
the youth. This is a communal reality. It's living it out. It's great. So the second way to understand the commandments has to do with covenant community. The third way of understanding the commandments has to do with covenant love. Freedom, community, love. This is the point of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods but me. This commandment is all about our covenant love of God. Martin Luther was right when he said, this commandment lies under all the other ones. You see, because to be content with what we have, for example, not coveting, the 10th commandment, or to keep the Sabbath, fourth commandment, or to honor our parents, fifth commandment, they are all acts of worship of God and of loving God. And to protect our covenant love of God in the first commandment, well, it's no surprise that the second commandment is therefore against idolatry. Luther said idolatry isn't about fashioning a piece of wood into something we bow down before, it's about loving something else more than we love God. Idolatry is about dethroning God from the center place of our affections and loyalties and about enthroning something else in his place. But we know the effects of this, don't we? When we become servants to the gods of our lives, we become wrapped up in ourselves. And so because all the commandments are about expressing our love for God, whatever our problem might be in life, whether it's struggling to be generous, it's struggling to find time for God, it's struggling with prayerlessness, it's letting workaholism overtake us, this problem of idolatry is the problem underneath every other problem. This is the sin underneath every sin. It's a matter of the heart, it's a matter of what we worship. You know, idolatry happens when we take other things and we make them more important to us than God. And we know it's happened when we just can't do without something. It can be something about something big or small. You know, for me, you know, sometimes my pen, you know, I, I feel inadequate, I can't find my pen, where's my pen? You know, I don't want that pen, I want my pen, my pen that I specifically chose from Officeworks. I, you know, I just can't, this is an idol, right? <laughs> But it could be something really big. It could be your family, all right? When we obsess about it, where if it's taken away, the, we feel like the bottom's dropped out of our life, it's an idol. And as usual, the most seductive idols are the ones that are good in themselves but become so distorted in our affections as to hold prominence over our love for God. You know, our work is a great servant, but it's a terrible master. Our health, our achievements, yes, even something as good as family can be a big idol. Family must never be more important to us than God. Never. Often we know that something has become an idol, or sorry, we don't know something's become an idol, but God covenants with us in relationship and often he will remove for a time that thing from our life or threaten to remove it or shake our foundation and then suddenly our idolatry is exposed and then we know. And that's why the last commandment is so helpful, a diagnostic, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that's his. Now again, our obedience here has not got to do with keeping the law but the love of our hearts. Love God and you won't covet. <laughs> we began by asking what does it mean to be in relationship with the living God? God's answer to his people is to redeem him through his grace and then place 
us under the demands of his grace, which are all about covenant freedom, covenant community, covenant love. How is all of this relevant to us? We live on this side of the cross. Jesus has come. Things have changed. Have they? Haven't they? Well, I want to finish by talking about the relevance of these commandments for having a relationship with God whom we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the sake of others. All the commandments here are for the sake of others because we are to be to the world a kingdom of priests that through seeing God in us, they would come to know God. So what's it mean? First of all, God the Father. Well, although these commandments were only ever given to Israel, God gave them to Israel with his eye on the nations, which means that they express God's moral stance for all people outside of Eden. If you compare these laws with the very specific laws in the next few chapters, we'll cover that next week, these have a much more absolute sense, and they aren't limited by geography. But there's one problem, and that is that we all break all of them. It's almost impossible for us to read them without a note of sadness or to read them without a greater sense of how sinful we are. And I think that's intentional because built into these commands is a longing for something better, a longing for someone to obey them fully, someone to come and change our wretched sinful hearts and give us a new heart. And at the end of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, God speaks to us and says, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant that will not be like the old covenant I made with Israel when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And the feature of the new covenant is that I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. This is God the Father's promise. The fault with the old covenant was not the commandments which remain good because they're given to us by God. The fault with the old covenant was the rottenness of our own sinful human hearts. And that's the reason why, of course, God appeared so terrifying to the Israelites because hearing God and seeing God exposed them and they realized they could not meet with God and live, not a God who was holy, and that's why they begged Moses to be their mediator. Enter God the Son. We might expect that Jesus removes the force of these commandments for us, but the fact of the matter is that if, in, if anything, Jesus intensifies the commandments. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. We have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in, in his heart. So Jesus intensifies the commandments. He gets under our skin and he exposes the spirit of them. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what we often think, isn't it? He says, do not think that. I have not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. And he does. He is the one who lives in complete covenant obedience to God, his heavenly father, who loves him with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's the only person who has obeyed not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of them. He alone is the truly righteous one, but here's the thing. He dies for us so that we might share in his righteousness. 
So that when we hear him say in the Sermon on the Mount that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about his righteousness which would become ours by faith in his death. And that's why on the night before he dies, when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is given for you. And taking the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. So that Jesus fulfills the requirements of the covenant and then he die, as he dies on the cross, God exchanges things. He, he takes all my covenant disobedience, including any time I've disobeyed the Ten Commandments, he places it all upon Jesus and his covenant obedience he gives to me. And then when we place our trust in Christ, God gives us, thirdly, his Holy Spirit. And then he writes his law in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. So that just as God on the mountain took the tablets and with his finger wrote the commandments on them, now God through his spirit writes his commandments on our heart by his spirit. This is the mark of God's spirit. So if you desire in your heart to obey the commandments, this is the mark of God's spirit transforming you. And that is why the 10 commandments are more precious to us under the new covenant than even to the Israelites who are under the old covenant because we want to obey them. We want to please our Heavenly Father. We want to be people who live in relationship with him as we should because we understand his grace and it is so transforming. And because Jesus has died, you see, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that means we're not afraid of the Ten Commandments. In fact, we can use them to expose the idolatry of our hearts and then Having been exposed, we come to Jesus Christ again and again and again. I'm going to finish by reading from Romans chapter 8. Paul says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Because what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Praise God. Praise God we can be his people. Father in heaven, what a wonder that you save us by your grace, you redeem us from sin and death and judgment, and you bring us to be your people together. And then you let us know how to live in freedom and in community and in love.
Our great God, we praise you that you are our Father who promised a new covenant. And we praise you for your wonderful Son who brings in the new covenant through his death, having lived that righteous life and fulfilling every aspect of the Old Testament law that we have fallen short of. And we praise you for your spirit who writes your law in our hearts. Keep doing that. Keep transforming us. And we praise you that we can meet in the fellowship of you and of your grace and of your love and of your mercy. May we be a light to the nations. Amen.